Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 231, Paul V. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. Today's Pope was born Camillo Borghese on September 17th, 1552, in the city of Rome. You might recognize his last name if you've ever toured around Rome. The Borghese Gardens and the Borghese uh, Museum and the Villa Borghese are pretty famous tourist attractions. And you'll notice his name from another place too, but I'm not going to say it until we get to that part in the story. Uh, His family had moved to Rome from Siena and had risen in the ranks of the local aristocracy. And while they weren't at the same level as kind of the big old Roman families that we've mentioned up to this point, they were starting to make their own in the city. Now, Camillo was entered fairly quickly into the papal curia, and his, his rise was assisted by the fact that his uh, godfather was elected Pope Gregory Fourteenth. He was sent to study law, both canon and civil law, in Perugia. Now, originally, the plan was for him to follow his father's lead and to become a, a lawyer and practice law as a layman. But his mother was particularly pious and had raised him in the faith uh, in a really devout way. And so he discerned a clerical vocation, was ordained a priest in 1577. He was devout, but he was also extremely capable and a great practitioner of canon law. And gradually, he was entrusted with more and more responsibility. He didn't make waves, but he did make friends, and he was humble and competent, and he inspired trust and confidence in those he met. In 1593, he was appointed as a diplomat to Philip II of Spain by Pope Clement VIII. And when he returned in 1596, the Pope named him a cardinal, then a bishop, and then in 1603, the vicar of Rome, an immensely important position. Now, as we've heard for several episodes, there were different factions in Rome, as there always tends to be in papal history, and Cardinal Borghese was a member of none of them. He preferred to stay at home and study canon law rather than align himself with one faction or another and make waves. And this was helpful in papal politics because the factions were getting particularly contentious. In the last episode, we heard that Leo XI was chosen because the Spanish and French and other Roman factions were so opposed to each other that they needed a compromise candidate. The French faction had tried to get Cardinal Baronius, the friend and disciple of St. Philip Neri, elected, but the Spanish faction hated him. Well, it's only been a month since that last conclave, and things really haven't changed. When Leo XI died just a couple weeks after being elected, Cardinal Baronius was again a candidate of one of the factions, and he wasn't very acceptable to several cardinals. And so they thought about electing the famous Jesuit, St. Robert Bellarmine. The saint was so opposed to being elected that he said he wouldn't pick up a straw off the ground if that's all it took to be elected pope. And he even thought of renouncing being a cardinal. The dispute between the various factions got so heated that the shouting could be heard outside of the conclave on the street. Cardinal Baronius didn't want all this fighting, and he told his faction not to elect him, and eventually they got down to finding a compromise. Cardinal Borghese was not the most evident candidate to be pope. He was part of no faction, yes, but he was also pretty young, only 52, and he was very healthy. Most of the last couple of popes haven't been. That's why they've been so short. And then he was too bookish as well. In fact, when he was informed that the cardinals were thinking about electing him, Cardinal Borghese himself didn't believe it. But all the cardinals could agree on him, and the violence of the conclave turned to calm, as many cardinals saw Borghese as the answer to prayer. He was elected on May 16, 1605, and he took the name Paul V in honor of Pope Paul III, who had been a great patron of his father. The new pope was a dedicated administrator and reformer. He continued the process of implementing the reforms of the Council of Trent, and he applied himself to the proper government of the church in Rome. However, like many popes at this time, he did seek to aggrandize and grow his family's prestige. Now, part of this is because if we've seen in other times, it was only your family that you could really trust to govern. You need an inner circle, which was particularly loyal. 
And Pope Paul V wasn't more nepotistic than other popes, but there was some backlash from the rest of Rome, particularly from the other Roman families, about the pretensions of the Borghese family after Pope Paul V took over. That being said, the nephews and family members he promoted were worthy of their offices, unlike past papacies. Now, evidence of this promotion of his family is available to this day in Rome, if only you look at the front of St. Peter's Basilica, because the major external work on the renovation of St. Peter's Basilica was completed during Paul V's pontificate, and emblazoned across the front of the basilica is written in Latin, in honor of the Prince of the Apostles by Paul V Borghese, Roman pontiff. Now, the key word that is in the direct center of the church's facade, the center, the first thing you see if you look straight at the church, is Borghese, and you can see that to this day. Now, he also hired a young architect named Bernini to build two bell towers on the front of the basilica, but as they were being built, they caused the roof of the nave to become structurally unsound, and they were later pulled down, which is why, actually, the facade doesn't look as architecturally sound as it's supposed to be. It looks a little too short. Now, all that being said, Paul V was a capable administrator, as I've mentioned already, and he defended in his pontificate the rights and prerogatives of the church. His canon law background colored his view of his duty as a pope. He wasn't a great teacher, per se, but he was an administrator, strictly interpreting the decrees of the Council of Trent and the prerogatives and responsibilities of the church. This mindset met its first challenge in a dispute with Venice over the relationship between the church and civil society. Now, Venice had been for some time trying to get out from underneath the sphere of influence of papal states for a while, and had passed two laws to kind of do so. One was forbidding the building of any church buildings without the express permission from the government, and the other was forbidding giving any property to the church. Now, this prompted the church then to, you know, respond, and then the Venetians kind of legally went after some high-ranking church officials, a bishop and an abbot, and so Pope Paul V excommunicated the Senate of Venice. Venice then retaliated by expelling the Jesuits from their territory, and as Venice didn't respond well, the Pope threatened with a military intervention, which could have dragged a lot of European powers on various sides into the conflict. Now, luckily, peace was mediated by King Henry IV of France, and tensions eventually died down, and the only thing that really remained afterwards was that the Jesuits were still expelled from Venice, but everything else went back to normal. There were two other major areas of diplomacy that were faced by the Pope in England, where James I was still retaliating against Catholics because of the gunpowder plot, and in Russia, where a claimant to the throne had converted to Catholicism and had asked the Holy See for support, and it didn't go anywhere. But the biggest geopolitical news of Pope Paul V's papacy, and something that we'll have to talk about for several episodes to come, is the start of the Thirty Years' War. And so I'm going to have to give a little background to the Thirty Years' War, since it's such a major event, and we'll see it, it colors a lot of the papacies over the next several episodes. Now, this war was the result of something that's been going on in the background this whole time, these simmering conflicts between Catholics and Protestant factions in the Holy Roman Empire. And this had been happening since the time of Martin Luther. Different states were governed by different rulers, and they had to follow the religion of that ruler. And that annoyed or or engaged uh, various members of their states. The more immediate cause of the conflict was a conflict over who would rule Bohemia, which is modern-day Czechia, a Protestant or Catholic. Now, the Holy Roman Emperor Matthias was without a direct heir, and he had appointed Ferdinand II as his successor, and as part of the process of getting him ramped up to be Holy Roman Emperor, got him elected king of Bohemia. Ferdinand was a strict Catholic, and he wanted to uproot Protestantism from the empire in general, 
And his rule over Bohemia was not appreciated by the Protestants in the kingdom. If you remember, back in the day, this was even before the Protestant Reformation, this was a very anti-church part of Central Europe. The, the Hussites were famously from Bohemia. Now, Ferdinand sent several Catholic regents to the region in order to kind of express his rule and to kind of put down some changes that made it harder to be a Protestant in the area. And they met with the Protestant leaders. They met on May 23rd, 1618, and tensions grew in the meeting, and eventually the Protestants picked up the Catholic representatives and threw them out of the window, which was a fall of 70 feet. Now, miraculously, the Catholics survived the fall. Catholics say the reason why is because angels helped them to survive. Protestants say the reason why is because they fell into a dunghill. Neither of those is supported in the historical evidence, and we can't really be sure how they fell. That long fall without dying. The incident, which is known to history as the defenestration of Prague, was enough to spark a war, and that is the Thirty Years' War. Now, the Pope did not wade into the conflict directly. He was, of course, supportive of the Catholic cause, but he wasn't willing to send troops in order to support it. He did send some money, but sometimes that money was not forthcoming due to financial restrictions by the Holy See. And so, Ferdinand II, set off basically on his own in order to, to help defeat the Protestant cause there. Now, when Ferdinand II succeeded Matthias as Holy Roman Emperor, his staunch Catholicism was seen as a cause of joy for those in Rome. But again, the Pope was relatively cautious in overtly supporting him politically, and he remained fairly neutral in the conflict. Now, at this point, Ferdinand didn't really need help. Ferdinand II won a big victory against the Bohemians at the Battle of White Mountain in 1620, which the Pope celebrated in Rome. More on that later. And it looked like the war would conclude advantageously for the Catholic forces. But as you know, the title of the war is the Thirty Years' War and not the One and a Half Years' War. And so it's probably not going to last just one and a half years. The Protestant leader of Bohemia was Frederick the Elector of Palatine and had been deposed of his rule in Bohemia. But now the emperor turned against his holdings in the Rhine as well. But more on that in a later episode. Now, the Pope's neutrality in international conflicts reflected a more modest role for the papacy in geopolitics in general, and one that came from the Pope's own focus on a good temporal administration of the Holy See in the Papal States. He was a good canon lawyer who wanted things to run properly and well. He didn't want to get messed up in all sorts of other far-flung things. And in general, he appointed good people to fill the roles of administration. The Pope's administrative mindset should not, however, be interpreted to mean that his reign was cold and, and hated. He was able to cut papal expenses through prudent management, he removed burdensome taxes, and he ensured the poor were treated well. His pontificate was viewed as one of the high points for the poor in Rome, in fact. And during that time frame, and it was, it was looked back on as, as really a fond time for many. However, by the end, the expenses of the building projects of St. Peter's Basilica and some of these conflicts abroad, especially in the Thirty Years' War, did run into financial issues for the Holy See, and they had less money coming. The Pope had to start borrowing, which isn't a great sign. Spiritually, the Pope canonized St. Charles Borromeo, and he beatified a lot of leading saints of the Counter-Reformation like St. Ignatius and St. Teresa of Jesus. Now, in January of 1621, while he was still rejoicing over the Catholic victory at White Mountain, Pope Paul V suffered a stroke. He died on January 28, 1621, and was eventually buried in the Basilica of Santa Maria Maggiore, he was succeeded by Pope Gregory the Fifteenth, and we will talk about him next time. Thank you for listening to Albemus Papam. You can find the rest of the Catholic Link podcast at catholiclink.org or on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you, and God bless you.